0: It's so good to be assembled and gathered at this place for this purpose. Given to God the glory due unto His name, reads the chronicler in First Chronicles 16, verse 29. It certainly is the case, as majestic, as great, as omnipotent as He is, He's worthy of our consideration, our worship, and our devout attention, even as we have expressed it in song. Even as we are gathered at this particular portion of the service tonight to give some thought to a section of the Word of God, we're delighted to be able to do that, as we'll see in a moment, turning our attention to even one of the chapters of the Old Testament. As we begin, at least, to think about that, I'd like to again express appreciation to the men who so capably and ably delivered the lessons last Sunday, both morning and evening. Indeed, it is a blessing this congregation continues to enjoy to see the number of gentlemen who can use their talents in that way to help all of us grow closer to the Lord. It was the case that then tonight as we come to this chapter in Jeremiah, I've entitled the lesson, Jeremiah's Linen Girdle. Now that particular phrase you noticed as Brother Wendell read in the 13th chapter just a moment ago, so may I invite you to turn back to the 13th chapter of Jeremiah and let's devote the next few moments to studying about one of the articles of clothing that was in Jeremiah's possession and see what was the case that was so important about it then and what might be the case that makes it so important by way of lessons for you and me today. As you'll notice, the book of Jeremiah itself is a somewhat lengthy major prophet, some 52 chapters in total, and among those chapters we find some penetrating and very memorable lessons. I've in fact listed some thoughts as you give thought to these messages of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, of course, written for your learning and for mine. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 11, we read, Now these things happen to them by way of example, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. If you'll notice the language by the Holy Spirit there, it again says these things, what things? The context identifies Old Testament events. Those things happen for examples for you and me. There are times we can learn from them what we ought to do because they, in fact, responded properly to God's commandments, such as Abraham's leaving Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12. There's also times, though, when they made tremendous mistakes. They failed to obey God, and we can also learn from them not, of course, to do what they did, but to learn to not do what they did. It is the case, as you'll notice, that frequently in the Old Testament especially, And in a moment, we'll comment briefly about the New Testament. But isn't it interesting that on many occasions in the Old Testament, God chose object-oriented visual means to present His messages. I've chosen a very small sampling. As you remember in Ezekiel chapter 5, Ezekiel was told to cut his hair... And the hair that was used or the hair that he cut was then to be divided into three parts and that was used as a tremendous lesson so Israel would never forget the great lesson taught by way of that parted hair. Three chapters later in Ezekiel chapter 8, reference is made to this interesting commandment. God told Ezekiel to bore a hole in the wall. What purpose would that serve? That chapter quickly informs us by boring a hole or punching a hole in that wall of Jerusalem. That was to be an object lesson that the people could not hide from God. He could see very clearly just as a person could look through the hole in the wall. We see the point. Quite often, God used object-oriented things like that to set before them very memorable lessons. One other one I thought I'd mention, this matter in Isaiah chapter 20 specifically having reference to the clothing that Isaiah wore or did not wear, as the case may be. That does bring us, though, to the lesson tonight, the reference to the linen girdle of Jeremiah 13. I would invite us to devote the rest of our time this evening to a study of that particular linen girdle, and you notice the context in which it appeared a little bit earlier. The prophet Jeremiah began his labors. In about the year 626 B.C., the southern kingdom was the only one then in existence. The northern kingdom had already gone into captivity, in fact, roughly 100 years earlier. As such, the independent state of Judah is all that remained. And even they had enjoyed times of great devotion to God. But there were times, of course, of tremendous unfaithfulness. And you notice God made mention of that in verse number 11, even in the text tonight. As you give thought to the nature of that, we find then that Jeremiah was no weak-hearted man. He, in stout-hearted and penetrating language, addressed the people of Judah and in fact put them face-to-face with their sins. He didn't whitewash or cover it over. He accused them directly. This is what you've done and this is what needs to be done by you in order to gain again the favor of God. To notice just a few of the passages in Jeremiah 2 verse 13 God speaking through Jeremiah said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There God said, My people have committed two evils. Look a few verses later in Jeremiah 2.32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. What a frightening consideration that here God's own people had forgotten Him. Is it possible today that God's people or His supposed people can forget Him? They in fact do not devote themselves sufficiently, adequately and properly to Him and thus they forget Him? We know that's possible. One of the constant reminders of the New Testament Jesus Himself said in Matthew six thirty three, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In Luke 9, verse 23, this affirmation is made. If any man will come after Me, Jesus said, then let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. Is it possible again, as we may ask, can we forget the Lord one or two or three days out of a week? It is easily done, isn't it? How clearly we need to recollect then that God's people in the Old Testament, but one of their errors was they had forgotten Him. Look at some other verses in Jeremiah 5.31. Closing verse of that chapter, we have a powerful reminder of false teaching. God again says, My people have sought the false prophets. My people have loved evil. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. God's own people enjoyed false teaching. May it never be so at Pippin. May it never be so in any place that you and I so love. You'll also notice in Jeremiah 6 verse 14. Specifically, let me highlight verse 16. It has been a favorite passage of my family and and mine because it reminds us of some cherished considerations. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, You'll notice the way that verse ends, though, must be one of the saddest verses in Jeremiah. We will not walk therein. The truth was presented. God said, this is the means by which life can be obtained. This is what will lead you to happiness here and, of course, happiness beyond. And the people didn't want that. Oh, how we need the old past today. The old Jerusalem gospel and a lot of it. For after all, isn't it still true that that has never changed? God has never changed His mind. The Lord has never reappeared to offer any modifications to it. That word is, as Jude described it, contend earnestly for the faith, Jude verse 3, which was once for all time delivered to the saints. The steadfastness of all those things bring me to chapter 7 verse 28. As an indictment of the ancient people of Judah, God through Jeremiah said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. How tragic. How tragic. They had had the oracles of God in their possession. They had been blessed with the Ten Commandments and the fullness of that Mosaic law. And yet God says, this is a nation that obeyeth not God. You and I realize that the United States of America, though perhaps at one time was far more biblically literate, far more knowledgeable of the truth than it appears to be today, are we also walking the pathway to where we might soon be said, this is a nation that obeyeth not God. Hopefully things will turn around before that indictment would be fully and completely as correct as it was of Judah. I would ask you to notice then that in the final analysis, one of the errors of Judah, she trusted in material things. In that case, the temple, Jeremiah 7 verse 3. Might we notice in that then specifically the certainty of this linen girdle in chapter 13. If we may highlight again what was affirmed for us in the reading... God came to Jeremiah and gave him this interesting commandment. Jeremiah, you go and obtain a linen girdle. That word in Hebrew means to purchase, to buy. So this is not something he already had in possession. He had to go and expend his own means such that he could obtain it. As you'll notice, Jeremiah did exactly that. And this particular girdle, at least that word, suggests a kind of waist cloth, or you and I might think of it as something more akin to a belt. And as Jeremiah acquired it, God again appeared to him and gave a very unusual commandment. He was not to put it in his closet. He was not to put it among his other matters of clothing. Jeremiah, you take that girdle that you have acquired and you make a journey, a trip to the Euphrates River. You dig a hole in the bank of that river and you hide that girdle. You leave it there. Jeremiah did exactly as God said. You'll notice, though, that many days passed. The text is very careful in saying, many days passed. And then God again appeared to Jeremiah and said, you go back and you, uh, find, you get the cloth, that girdle that you buried. Again, Jeremiah was very dutiful. He proceeded back, remembering no doubt the place that he had hid it. And as he then dug it up, re-obtaining it, you'll notice that some things, perhaps not shockingly, he discovered... That linen girdle, having been hidden there in a moist place, beside a river of course, that girdle was now marred. It had deteriorated. It had decayed, if you please. And as the text is careful to say, it's now unprofitable and good for nothing. You and I might again think that's not in itself too surprising, but why would God have given Jeremiah such an unusual command? As you can see, there was a great object lesson in this, one that Jeremiah was never to forget and one that God's people were to learn a lesson from. I'd invite you to note specifically the language as it appears. Verse number 8, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner, That's a prepositional phrase that means in exactly the same way. Jeremiah, just exactly the way that your girdle is marred, unprofitable, vain, and useless. Verse 9 says, I will mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. In the same way that that belt was now deteriorated and useless for the purpose with which it was intended, so too God said, I'm going to mar the pride of my people. I'm going to, in fact, destroy the thing upon which they have based themselves because they have erred from the truth which I delivered to them. And in so doing, this will be a grand lesson for them. Again, you'll notice the bottom. God's people had become good for nothing. In the same way that the girdle was useless and good for nothing, God says, My people have become that way. Doesn't that seem astounding? A people who had been given the law... A people who had known the great prophets who had come their way and tried to instill within them the knowledge and power of God and yet now God of them could truthfully say, My people are good for nothing. What an amazing tragedy that a people had veered so far from the God that loved them, from the God that had done so much for them. You might recall He had brought them out of Egyptian bondage. He had led them across the Red Sea. He had given them a land of Canaan in which to dwell. He had defeated their enemies. He had risen up prophets. He had given them kings. And now they could be described as a people good for nothing. Doesn't it remind us as Christians, of course, surely, we would never want to be classified by God as good for nothing. Never want to find ourselves in life in a station in which it could be said of us, He or she is good for nothing, and yet that in parallel is what has happened here. May I suggest to you a number of things that you and I might be able to extract and learn from this interesting episode of the Linen Girdle of Jeremiah. Among them, might we start here. The simplicity of God's message. What God had needed and affirmed and what He had set before the children of Israel might fairly be said not to be overly difficult. Again, He had sent them the prophets. He had given them the word and it had even been written by that time and they had it read on their various Sabbaths and at various occasions in their assemblies. Their children had grown up hearing it, Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 7. It was such that that law was well known to them, at least by word. God's message today still reminds us that His will is both understandable and knowable. I realize, and that's partly what prompted me to include at least this reminder, because not on a few occasions you and I encounter those who make the claim God's Word cannot be understood except by some miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. That kind of thought simply is not true. We have before us the authenticated, fully inspired, thoroughly complete Word of God. And it is given to us in ways and in language and in means whereby God intended for us not only to be able to read it and appreciate it, but to obey it. His Word was given to be obeyed. I would invite you to notice some of the statements that even remind us of the parables of the New Testament. Those parables that our Savior taught also were object-oriented lessons, weren't they? A sower went forth to sow in Matthew 13. The parable of the tares also found in that same great chapter. Was there not that tremendous parable associated with the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10? And on and on that list goes. Those are stories even our youngsters remember. May you and I, even as adults, thoroughly keep in mind the power and truth of those parables Just as surely as this linen girdle was meant to be used by the people of that day, God's message is understandable. In Ephesians 3 verse 4, the inspired writer said there on that occasion, Paul, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery. Wasn't it the case then that upon reading, they were to understand? In the days of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 8 verse number 8, On that occasion, again, in the heart of the Old Testament, the prophet Ezra, the priest, I should say, stood up before the people and read from early morning until noonday the law. You might remember the people were so respectful of it, they stood up the whole time. I wonder if you and I would do that today. Would we stand up for four or five hours and listen to the gospel proclaimed? Those people, at least at that moment, had enough respect for the sacred text and the matters associated with it that they listened with intensity. Then verse number 8 says, So upon reading it, Nehemiah, or rather Ezra, explained and gave the sense and caused the people to understand. You see, they could understand it. You'll notice furthermore in this interesting set of passages, Matthew chapter 11, verse number 30, Jesus Himself on that occasion highlighted by virtue of the ways of John the Baptist the understanding capability of the Word God had given. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, mention is made of the simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity. As you and I then reflect upon simplicity and the understandability of the Word, might we thus appreciate that in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 through 14, The inspired writer reminded us one more time that eye hath not seen nor ear heard what God has in store for those that love Him. There are many who have misabused, they have misused that passage, thinking that makes reference to heaven when it doesn't. For he quickly in the next verse says, These are things revealed in the Word. When you and I read the sacred text, it's meant to be understood and in it we can find the descriptions of heaven The marvelous wonder of what involves salvation from sin, and the blessedness, of course, of being a faithful follower of the Master. Inasmuch as that is affirmed, might I ask you to notice that's not the only lesson. God's word was simple for Jeremiah go get a girdle, go bury it, and then later go back and get it again when commanded, and Jeremiah did that. What about this other lesson? What did God desire of Israel? So far this evening, we've noted many occasions in which texts have been used to state Judah had made mistakes. Judah was given to sin. Judah was a nation that did not obey God. Judah was like a maiden that forgot her ornaments. Judah had committed two evils and all those other verses we noted previously. But might I invite you to notice, what then was it that God wanted? Could it not be fairly summarized in these words? He wanted humble, devoted obedience to His commandments. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 1, it says, All of these things I have commanded thou shalt keep. That word all meant every one of them. They weren't allowed to pick and to choose their favorites. They weren't allowed to select the ones that were the most convenient. They were to respect the givenness of what God affirmed and give their attention with duty to all of them. Maybe Micah summarized it in such a tender way in Micah 6 verse 8. There wasn't it Micah who said, What doth the Lord require of thee? That's the very question we're asking. What did God want of them? What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Isn't that a lovely verse? Let's revisit it. They were, of course, what doth the Lord require of thee? They were to love mercy. They were to appreciate that the God of heaven had been merciful to them, and as such they were to appreciate the goodness and greatness of His being. Love mercy. They were to walk humbly with their God. Notice humility is thus included. They were never to arrogantly exalt themselves above God, but they were to even remember themselves that he that exalteth himself should be abased, and he that abaseth himself shall in fact be exalted." that passage occurring in Matthew 14. As you give thought to those things, you'll notice at the bottom, maybe that brings us to that interesting set of passages in the New Testament. Obedience is so often looked upon with a great frown, isn't it? In fact, maybe in conversation you have had individuals say, you are too caught up in commandment keeping. You're too caught up in trying to take literally what the Bible says. You need to understand God we're told, is a God of love and He doesn't so much care about the details. We did mention that this morning in the Bible hours, I recall. But maybe that flies so carefully in the face of passages like these. It's as though one final time in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, on the last page of the Bible perhaps, we find the Christ Himself reminding us of this. Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Much, very much could be said about that verse. The city being described as heaven. What then is required in order for an individual to acquire entrance into that golden place called heaven? He says, blessed are they that do His commandments. Why? To what end? That they may have right to the tree of life. That mention of the Tree of Life takes us back to one of the first stories, one of the first records in all the Bible. Adam and Eve in Genesis two, verse nine, dwelt in a garden specially prepared and set forth by God Himself. They dwelt in a place where they had access to two trees in particular a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and a tree of life. They were never to partake of one of them, for God said in the day thou shalt eat thereof, thou shalt surely die, Genesis two sixteen. However, that other tree, apparently they could partake of it with freedom, the tree of life. They could eat thereof and not die. They could eat thereof, partaking of that fruit, and enjoy existence continually in the flesh. But all of that changed in Genesis 3. For the tempter, as subtle and as wily as he was, appeared before Mother Eve. She listened to what he said, partook of the fruit, gave to Adam. He did as well. And at that point, they died spiritually. They disobeyed and transgressed the command of God. And we notice the sentence of physical death began because they were thrust out of the garden and thus no longer had access to the tree of life. And thus, at the age of 930, Adam died. We don't know how old Eve was, but we do know she died as well. Maybe at this point we can then revisit Genesis, or rather Revelation 22. They had access to the tree of life sweet and lovely as one would imagine, the perpetual life that it made possible. But then what we lost in Adam, we gained through Christ. There is another tree of life. Where is it? Revelation 22 said, Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. That other tree of life, of course, resides in that beautiful place called heaven where there will never be any death. Never be any dying, never any sorrow and pain of lost loved ones. That'll be a wonderful place of no parting in that way. This tree of life then that we consider here notices in our mind yet another lesson. God's people Israel, in this case particularly Judah, Isn't it interesting that, again, these were people that were God's chosen people, according to Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 and 9. These were people that were the children of Abraham through Jacob. They were the chosen race. They were the ones through whom the Christ child would one day be born. Might we ask this, if this people were so special, why didn't God miraculously intervene and stop them from sinning? Why did He not intervene on their behalf and keep the devil at bay? Maybe that lesson points us here. God will permit you and me to make our own choices, just like He did them. They chose to disobey. They chose to worship idols. They chose to disobey in the various ways. And God allowed them to make those foolish choices. And He allowed them to walk down the progressive pathway of sin. Isn't the progressiveness of sin a rather amazing thing? And may we as Christians never forget it. Maybe the opening psalm highlights it most carefully. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Three different avenues, attributes, if you please, are mentioned in that verse. First, blessed are is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, You'll notice to walk by it remains at distance. Next thing he says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. You'll notice the person has now stopped to gaze, to look, to question, to inquire, to consider. Not just walking by anymore. Enough interest has been shown to stop and at least give further thought to. That's dangerous with respect to temptation, isn't it? But finally, to sit down with it. Now one has become a partner to it. One has become friends with this ungodliness. Isn't that the way sin can grow on us? What starts first as something we'd say, that's evil, it's wrong, I want no part of it. But then after a while of association, after a while of at least pondering it, one suddenly gives it deeper thought, richer appreciation, and before you know it, if one isn't careful, one's involved in the very same thing. That doesn't occur overnight, but isn't it easy to happen gradually over a period of time? May we never allow our spirit to be desensitized to sin. 1 Timothy 4 verse number 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. What's the end result, Paul? Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They had become desensitized to sin. God's people had become the same. As you and I learn again that lesson, may we always use the Word of God to remind us what sin is, how atrocious it is, so that we can never fall prey into it. One of the verses that I thought we'd briefly consider there was that 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11. We're there, it reminds us that God allowed the people, even in the Thessalonian congregations and in its surrounding environs, He allowed them to believe a lie and to be damned because of it. God won't miraculously intervene and keep you and me on the right track. We must invest the effort, rightly dividing the word, 2 Timothy 2.15, meeting together with the saints, even as we are tonight, to be reminded of truth and song as we study the word together. That effort has been left to us, hasn't it? May we then choose that last lesson to close our thought tonight. Although it has often been a matter that man has questioned, and often something that in fact has been used to assert the foolishness of those that are members of the Church of Christ. Isn't it true, based on Jeremiah's linen girdle, the people that once were gods, he himself said they are now good for nothing. They are now lost and they are now dwelling in a world of iniquity and sin. Question, can that happen today? One who once was saved, one who once was in favor with God, knowing the power and prestige of right relationship, can that one so live as to be good for nothing spiritually? To be separate and apart from the loving forgiveness and kindness of God? The answer is absolutely. There's perhaps nothing any more clearly taught in the New Testament than that. And yet, we still live in an age and in a time when many look upon that as simply impossible. That simply can't be the way God is. But that's the way that He is because the Scriptures say so. As we close our lesson with that, a number of verses are given. We'll not read all of them, but let's just select a couple of them. As the Lord Himself addressed the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3... An interesting statement is made. First of all, reference is made to a congregation that had a name that they were living, but the Lord quickly affirmed, you're dead. This was a location, this was a congregation of people that had a name that they were living. They may have been called, and I suspect perhaps they were, the Sardis Church of Christ as they assembled and met. They had the impression of setting forth all that was viable and truthful, But the Lord said, you're dead. They weren't living from the heart the truth that they claimed. They weren't practicing what they preached. In so doing, the Lord said, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove the blessing. I'm going to remove the white name, if you please. And furthermore, I'm going to erase your name from the book of life. Isn't that interesting? That book of life that you and I so often consider as a book in which when a person is scripturally baptized his or her name is written in that book the book of the saved but had you ever thought that there is an eraser that can erase names from that book and if there's any verse that teaches that a person once saved can be lost it doesn't that teach it here in Sardis they needed to repent otherwise their names are going to be removed from that book and in that removal they of course would become lost indeed one chapter earlier in Revelation 2, verse 10, Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Faithful until death, unto even the point of death. That nature perhaps points us to that final verse, Second Peter 3, verse number 11. Seeing then that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The Christian walk is in a powerful walk day by day, isn't it? A walk in which you and I have been able even this very night to learn so much from Jeremiah's linen girdle. God gave him a simple commandment and Jeremiah obeyed it. In so doing, this girdle became marred and good for nothing. So too, God's people had become the same. May you and I not allow that to happen to us. But may we daily, fervently, ardently, joyously walk the life of Christianity moment by moment always enjoying the fellowship that we have with the Master. And in that fellowship, those lessons are what came before us. The simplicity of God's message, the simplicity of God's demand, the characteristic associated with the saved possibly being lost, and finally, the progressive nature of sin. With that, we'll close our lesson with the admonition that Paul gave the church at Corinth. In the closing verse to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter of the New Testament, Paul said, Be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Each of us are then beneath the characteristic of these messages tonight. They're as needful for every one of us as possible because they remind us of constant service to Jesus Himself. What about you as you analyze and scrutinize your life? Are you saved tonight? Or are you good for nothing spiritually because you are distant and separated from God? That linen girdle teaches that you need to make some changes. You need to repent. You need to come to Him. If you've never rendered initial obedience to His cause, you must believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God." You must, in fact, repent of your sins as taught by the Lord Himself in Luke 13:5. You also are commanded to confess in a verbal way the faith, the belief that you have that He is the Son of God and then to be baptized simply, directly, straightforwardly for the remission of your sins. The baptistry behind me is ready. All that could be accomplished in a matter of moments. Your eternity could be changed forever. But if you have begun that walk with Him, but you, like the children of Israel, have not been faithful, though once you were good for a lot of things, now really you're not good for hardly anything spiritually. Why not make a change? Don't remain in that state. Jesus died that you might be safe. Why not come to Him tonight? Again, be steadfast and unmovable. If you have moved away, remember that word means to not be moved. Why not come back to that steadfast rock that is the basis for all things good. If we could help you tonight by prayer, even as we did this morning for Edward, we'd be delighted to do that for you as well. If you have any of these needs in your life, will not you let that be known and come at once while together we stand and while we sing.